That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Well, good evening and welcome to the second episode in the history of Cascade of History. We're live for the next hour on Space 101.1 FM here from historic Magnuson Park in Seattle, site of the longtime Sandpoint Naval Air Station. And uh, we're the only live radio show all about Northwest history. We're on every Sunday night uh, from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on this radio station, also streaming at space101fm.org. We have a wonderful show for you tonight. Of course, everyone always says that at the start of every radio show, but this time I really mean it. Um, we've got a couple of guests who will be joining, joining us by telephone. We'll be talking to Gus Malonis, and if you pay any attention to railroad history or railroad news uh, here in the Northwest, you've heard that name before. He's a longtime railroad professional with a love of railroad history and some great stories. Um, then we're going to listen to some vintage audio. Uh, it's a rare interview Bob Hope gave in Seattle back in June 1946. And we don't have the whole interview. It's a, he, I think the whole thing's about 20 minutes long. We're going to hear about a five- or six-minute uh, excerpt. He was in town promoting a live show he was doing out at Six Stadium. It's right after the end of World War II, or less than a year after World War II ended. And then we're also going to be joined by Stephanie Johnson Tolliver, who's president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington. And for those who haven't heard the show before, and there's probably a lot of you since this is only the second episode, and last week I didn't press all the right buttons, so I wasn't able to record it and post it as a podcast. But this week, I think I may have managed to actually do that properly. Anyway, um, we're all about Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, that part of the world that at one point was known as the old Oregon country. We're united as a region, though we're different entities now, different countries even with the case of uh, British Columbia and Canada and all the indigenous tribes and everything. It's it's a big stew, but uh, there are some consistent threads of history. We're going to try and get into all those over the next, I don't know, how many months we'll be doing this every Sunday night, talking to people live, posting it as a podcast. If you have ideas for guests I should talk to, or stuff you're doing with your organization or just as, a, as an individual or whatever, send it at me an email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Um, I do read all those. I do respond to all of them. And I'd love to hear what people are up to, what they care about, what kinds of history they want to hear about and learn about and talk about live on the radio. Because I think there's no better combination of a live medium like radio, local radio, and uh, talking about history, telling stories. Um, anyway, so that's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. And we are here for the next hour or so. So I'm going to press the right button now and try and bring into the conversation. Uh, here he is, Gus Malonis. Can you hear me, Gus? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, that's great. Okay, I'm going to just adjust Hey, this. Felix, how's this? I just switched the speaker off. Is that better? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, you sound really good. Okay. Um, so you're live on the air with me right now. I'm just messing with the levels here to make sure that we're not uh, blowing anybody's ears out here with our .005 watts of power. Um, all right, well, Gus... Um, I think I was trying to remember the last, the first time you and I spoke to each other, and that's, I don't know, it was sometime in the last five or ten years, and I was doing some kind of a, a history, doing some research, and you and I talked about, the thing I remember you telling me about was uh, your family's history with, with railroads and growing up down in Wishram. Is that so, I, let's start, tell, what was the first job you ever had working on the railroad? Well, I can tell you where I grew up. It was Wishram, 100 miles 
east of Portland on the Columbia River on the Washington side, and it was a small railroad town. So I grew up with trains. That's In that town, though, geez, in the 50s, I was born in 58, the town had a population of probably five, 600, and the large majority were railroaders. So we lived in an old little railroad house that was issued to my dad. He worked for the SPNS Railway, and we lived in that house right next to the tracks, and you could hear the cars <laughs> banging all night long. <laughs> yeah, and so my twin brother and I, we uh, there wasn't a lot to do. There were gravel roads. I remember a lot of stray cats and <laughs> a lot of tin cans that were opened up. In the, there were woods next to our house, and we would walk. There was a little park, and we would visit with hobos. Back then, the railroads would... They had a lot of property, and if the transients weren't interfering with the railroad operation, the railroaders would just turn their heads and let these people live in the jungles. They were called hobo jungles. And I remember one of the hobos had a dog. We had a black and white TV, and we would watch Lassie. And <laughs> one of the hobos had a dog that looked like Lassie, and the, this guy got to know us, and he would give my brother and I Twinkies, and then I remember the dog would lick the wrappers after we would eat the Twinkies. Nice. So those are my earliest memories. But definitely, it was a railroad town. Yeah. And I've been to Wishram a few times. It's been a few years. But I remember uh, I was there probably uh, early 90s. And you could still see on the old post office where it said the name of the town was Fallbridge, which I think they changed that name back in the 30s. <laughs> but they, exactly. they hadn't gotten around to changing the sign yet. <laughs> right, yeah. And, it's, and now they call... We have divisions on the railroad where our trains operate today, BNSF, and that's, that area is called the Fallbridge Division. That's Went great. back to the old name. But it was once there was an Indian village near there. Salilo Falls existed before the Dallas Dam went in. And I remember my dad was working on the project, and they had to be really careful trying to preserve the Indian petroglyphs and pictographs that still exist on the cliffs in that area today yeah. near our main line. It's pretty interesting. I remember the natives would drop salmon off. My dad hired, he was in the track department and was able to hire people, and he hired a number of Native Americans in that town. So I remember we would go, there were some natives that lived behind our house, and my brother and I would walk to their house, and the girls would always play Beatles records and jump up and down on their beds. We moved when I was six years old from Wishram. My dad got transferred to Portland, and we moved to Vancouver. Huh. And so that was a huge transition for us. I remember we all we not only would get so on the black and white TV, we would also get the Jetsons. And when we moved to Vancouver, it was like going to the space age, <laughs> coming from Wishram, the dirt roads, and um, just a totally different lifestyle. I remember the neighbors in Vancouver had a Jaguar and. But both locations, you could hear the trains. When we moved to Vancouver, I thought was really great as a kid is that we could see the main line of the Seattle sub from Vancouver, the line that we operate on today from Vancouver to Seattle, and you could see the train lines. Wow. So, now, now, you're retired from BNSF, but you're back doing some consulting for them, I understand. That's correct, yeah. And I started in 76, so I remember. So we moved to Vancouver, and when I was in high school, my dad said, you're going to work on the railroad. And I remember... The first night before I reported to my track crew, my buddies pulled up in their cars, and they were trying to get me to go to the movie Jaws. And I said, you guys, I'm not going to Jaws because I have to be on the tracks working the next day at 5 a.m. And I walked into the train station that next morning, and 
it was an old depot waiting room, and the foreman was in there, and he had his feet up on the desk, and he's smoking a cigar, and it was so smoky in that room. <laughs> and it was like it was like going – I didn't have to go to Jaws because when I walked into that depot, it was like the black and white version of The Wizard of Oz. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. It was, it was difficult work. It was all by hand, track crew. Um, I'd say all by hand. The majority of the work was by hand, and it, it wasn't easy. It was – a lot of those guys on that crew, they, they started – some of them in the 20s, one guy had a rope for a belt, and it was interesting. And I didn't know how long. I, I went to college, and I worked summers and vacations. And I, the day I graduated from University of Portland, I reported the next day on a track crew. And I became track inspector, and then I went into management um, after nine years. I was in the union for nine years and then went into management and operations. Huh. And then I got promoted into public relations. And and going back to um, to Wishram and your dad working for SPNS and for people who don't know what that is, first of all, tell tell us what SPNS was, and then tell me about your dad when he started and what he did for the railroad. Yeah, so the SPNS is the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle Railway, and it was a Northwest Railroad, and it was part of four companies that merged that created the biggest railroad in the world at the time, which was Burlington Northern. Um, and SPNS merged in '70 with the Great Northern, the Northern Pacific, and the CB&Q, Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. And so, my dad, my grandfather, actually came from Greece at the turn of the century, and he had a railroad contract company. He was really good with his hands, and he built the original railroad. His crew, he was the general foreman, and they laid the rail through the Columbia River Gorge from Vancouver, some of Portland along the Columbia River Gorge to Wishram, which is 100 miles, like I said, <laughs> east of Portland on the Washington side, and then built the Wishram Rail Yard, and then along the Deschutes River on the Oregon Trunk Route, which we still operate on today. So um, my grandfather worked there. My father became a water boy at 15 years old. And when my grandfather was a foreman, my dad, he didn't speak English. My dad did a lot of his paperwork. Wow. And they had a dairy as well. And my uncle worked for the railroad, and so I, when I was in high school, just hired on, and so did my twin brother. My twin brother still works today. My dad was in the engineering track maintenance group, and that's what I hired on, and my twin brother is still in that department to this day. And then my uncle, my dad's brother, was in operation. So That's great. Now, in case you're just joining us, you're listening to Cascade of History here on um, Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell. Our guest is Gus Malonis. He's a old-time, long-time railroad guy with a long history with the local railroads here in the Northwest. Um, now, so from what you remember as a kid, um, didn't Wishram, wasn't there a, a place there where they fed employees they called the Beanery? Right. So in that town, there was very little there. There was a grocery store. I remember a Catholic church that my mother would take us to. We would go to the grocery store, and I remember we would, my brother and I would grab bottles of pop, and the old clerk there would just check off on the list what we took, and, <laughs> and then my dad would pay the bill every couple of weeks. Um, but there was a beanery and a hotel. That was it. And uh, the beanery was the railroad. It, it, so there was a railroad hotel that shut down right before I was born. But the beanery stayed open until it was the last railroad issued that stayed in operation restaurant for the employees that was open 24-7 and that was the only restaurant in town and I remember going in there it was all the smoke and the railroaders would be in there and they'd 
I, I remember they all got plates of eggs and biscuits. Nice. And, yeah, just talking railroad stories. But that was it. You were, if you lived in that town, you were destined to be a fisherman. You'd pick fruits. The orchards were around there, or really the railroad. And I heard that at one time, per capita, per household, that Wishram had the highest income. But hmm. I don't know how true that is. And, and and so in the time that you remember from being a kid in Wishram and then working in 1976 on on uh, track crew, what's changed the most about the railroad industry or the you know, I mean it, are there still guys with belts uh, with ropes for belts or uh, smoking in the beanery anywhere? Or? You know, I walk out on the track. It's it's the biggest change they say in the railroad. Two things. Number one was the evolution, and it was in the 40s and 50s from steam to diesel, the power for the locomotives. And then just within the last couple of years, PTC, which is positive train control, mm. and that if you and I are operating a train today, you're the engineer, I'm the conductor, and we're visiting, and we run through a red signal, well, that train will come to a stop. So computers are just huge in railroad. You look at a track structure, and it appears obsolete as it did a hundred and 70 years ago, four feet, eight and a half inches gauge, and <laughs> kind of looks the same, but boy, there's sensors, monitors, detectors everywhere. It's extremely high tech. And show me another transportation company where if you make a mistake and you run through an area where that mode of transportation is going to come to a stop. Railroads are pretty high tech, so there's there's been changes everywhere, and I experienced that, so I went into public relations, and I was here in Seattle for the Northwest Division in PR in 86, and then 87, I think it was 80, yes, 87, and then 88, I got transferred, we had a big reorg, and during that restructuring, I got transferred to Lincoln, I'm on my way to Lincoln, I pulled over to the, the depot in Spokane to check my messages, <laughs> and there was a call to call the general manager, and he said, do you want to come to Haver, Montana? And I thought, hey, that's closer than Lincoln, Nebraska. I'd be <laughs> close to Vancouver, where I wanted to end up. And um, so I went out to Montana, and there was just so much change going on. It was crazy. We sold the Montana Rail Link, which is the old route that ran from basically Sandpoint, Idaho, down through Missoula, Bozeman, Billings, along the Yellowstone. And we had that was a sale lease, and it became the Montana Rail Link. And we had we were basically centralizing so much of the operation, shutting down branch lines, old lines that would go to grain elevators, shutting mm. down the depots, the agencies. We uh, would centralize clerical positions and shut down We shut down a diesel shop. And it was, it was a huge change. Went from four or five-person train crews to two-person train crews. So it was volatile, and it was very, the politics were tough. Uh, the morale was bad internally and externally. So I went out to try to pave things over internally and externally and did what I could do to let people realize that uh, change is essential and um, that we're good neighbors. And we, I think we did a lot in Montana to yeah. help the situation out. It's sort of sad to see the old depots boarded up and then eventually, I don't know, burned down or whatever, or the, the, the lack of the caboose. I remember being a little kid seeing the uh, Burlington Northern trains on the old Beltline, like going through Kirkland near where I grew up. And um, there'd be a guy, you know, waving out the back of the caboose, or the engineer would wave and stuff. And I mean, you know, it, was, it was a different era, and it's it not really that long was. ago. It was, yeah. I, I try, and I've tried everything I could do to hang on to the depots as much as we can. We preserved the depot at Cheney. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there's Silicum, still exists. It's still, we 
obsolete. Yeah. And, but we still have a depot at Silicon. We'd like to, we told the city we would give it to them, but they have to move it off. So trying to develop a plan for that. Blaine, huh. the depot there still exists. And yeah, it is sad to see so much of the history disappear, but we try to preserve it and try to try to do what we can do. Yeah. Just, and and yeah. there's there's so many rabid rail fans, you know, people who are, pulling off along the highway and taking pictures of trains or keeping records of, you know, the numbers of the locomotives that are going by and everything. Um, and, I mean, in the back in 76 when you are first working on a track crew, were the guys you were working with, did they, were they, were the workers for the railroad, were they also rail fans or were they sort of just like kind of sick of it because it was just a job for them, matter of fact, like the guys out, you know, swinging the hammers and doing the really grubby work, did they love the trains as much as it's, it's clear that you do and that I do and that other sort of rail history nuts do? You know, everybody's different, and yeah. there were some that were, we had a lot of, I mean, I remember there were a couple of Greeks that couldn't speak English, and I, I spoke a little Greek with them as much as I could make out, and these guys, they just, a lot of the people were there for a paycheck. There were a lot of Vietnam vets that I worked with. They, some really, really, they, they overall, they, it's so unique. You're out there isolated, and you work together, sometimes 12, 16-hour days. And, of course, when you're picking and shoveling <laughs> and it's pouring down rain all day, it gets tough. But, man, when you get the paycheck and at the end of the day you get together, it's, um, there's a lot of pride there. And, and the majority, they, they really did like it just because it was so unique and they knew they were making a difference. And yeah. um, a lot of people look at a train and they hear it whistle and it might irritate them or it might block a crossing for longer than they want, and we try to keep those crossings clear, but we have a huge role. We move so much freight, and each one of the trains, for example, through Seattle, those trains take five, sometimes 600 trucks off the roadway each train, and that keeps the roads clear for us to operate our vehicles on. So, yeah, and I think when I, so I became a track inspector when I was in the track department, and I look back at my career, and there were some very interesting times, um, especially when I went to Montana because I worked on movies as well. I wrote a train of Johnny Cash once. And, <laughs> but, um, wait, 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 wait. wait yeah, I'll you tell t- you that story. <laughs> no, yeah, okay, we're going to come back. I'm going to flag that right now. Yeah, we're coming back to go. writing yeah, a train with Johnny Cash. Yeah. You can't just you can't just casually drop that on no, this show. <laughs> exactly. And probably my favorite person I ever worked with was Winona Judd. So, oh, wow. Oh, you know, yeah. But anyway, so when I was track inspector, we converted and went from the motor cars that you operate on the track and you lift them on and off and you're talking to the trains and the dispatchers and looking for defects along the line. You have a route at a 100 miles as a relief track inspector. Huh. And what was really cool is that I could wave at the kids in the fields on horses. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah. tried to um, keep the image and show that we're more than just a loud locomotive operating down the track. We have personalities. And we care about the public as much as the uh, enthusiasts care about us. And, and so Johnny Cash on a train, tell, tell me that story. So there you go. So I was in Montana, and another restructure, reorg, and I'm along Highway 2 at Libby. I was on a payphone checking my messages, coming from my office in Haver, going over to Coeur d'Alene. I was going to stay in Spokane. And corporate called me, Fort Worth, the headquarters, and they said, report back to Whitefish. There's going to be a private train, and the vice president position has been consolidated. The individual is not going to make it, so can you just get on a, tr- a business car and, and answer questions? It's Celebrity of the Stars, where every year these top high school kids would get to go to Disneyland or wherever, and this year they're in Montana, so BNSF, or BN at the time, Burlington Northern, 
we participated by giving a train ride from Whitefish to East Glacier hmm. through the Rockies on the main line. So I get, I'm sitting in the back end of the car. There were coaches there for all the kids, and the buses came up, and all the kids got in, the top high school performers in the world that were part of this, whatever it was, Celebrity of Stars or whatever. And here come the limos up, and these people were riding in the back car with me, the private car, and there were like 17 people in that back car, and it was me, and all I did was just answer questions. <laughs> Johnny Cash, Tom Selleck, this is during Magnum P.I., um, who else was there? General Schwarzkopf, Desert Storm era. Yeah, um, wow. The Judds were there, Julius <laughs> Irving, um, who else? Herschel Walker was there. Herschel was a great guy. He asked a lot of questions, but... Winona Judd was so nice. Johnny Cash sat in the back, did not say a word that entire trip. <laughs> and we, and I'm, I'm cringing. I shouldn't say this, but so we had a derailment. We spilled this grain, and there was grain. On, and we, I'll tell you, we, to our defense, we got out and we removed all the ballast, all the rock, brought in new rock. We didn't want a food source for the bears, but we spilled 54 cars of grain in this area. Oh, wow. And it was a food source for the grizzlies, and here we come, and I think, oh, man. And it, we stop on the siding right where that derailment occurred. <laughs> and sure enough, I'm uh, Tom Selleck, I remember, spotted. I thought, oh, man, I hope they don't see this grizzly. And there was the bear <laughs> next to the train. <laughs> but uh, That's great. <laughs> yeah, but we cleaned it all up. And we put up bee bear aware signs to our employees and critter getters, which were alerters on all the bridges, and did a lot to help the environment and uh, habitat out in that area. Boy, weird coincidence, Johnny Cash. I was riding the Empire Builder, the only time I ever rode it from uh, Seattle to Glacier National Park and back, when Johnny Cash died. I remember it was on the, I was listening to the radio, it was on the news all night. Uh, Johnny Cash and um, uh, the guy from Three's Company, John Ritter, died it on the same day, like in 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, just that. No. That's that's my random. That's yeah, my yeah, random fact for the night. Train, yeah, he didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't want to say anything. I shouldn't even have been on that train with those people. <laughs> but I remember at Winona Judd. She was so friendly and asked a lot of questions. Nice. Probably the best. Another time, I got a call from Imagine Productions out of Burbank, and it was. They said, "Can you have a conversation with?" This is when I was director of PR out in Montana. I was in Montana for four years, and then. I got the region job in Seattle, and they moved me to Seattle in 92. And um, so I then took on 14 states and two Canadian provinces that I managed the wow. PR for until I retired. And, well, we went to smaller territories the last few years of my career. But anyway, I got a call from Imagine Production. They said, can you talk to Mr. Howard? So anyway, Ron Howard got on the phone and said, hey, we're going to have this blockbuster in Montana. Here's the storyline. Think about it. We need a steam train. We want to select an area to shoot this train, and there's going to be some pretty big-time talent in the movie. So anyway, <laughs> we participated. The governor's office called the film commission, and so we selected. I high-railed. Uh, Ron Howard flew out. He and I high-railed across various lines in Montana that were low density that might work with their film scouts and um, location scouts that would look good for the movie. So we shot around Lewistown, and I brought in a steam train, and Hmm. I got to know Nicole Kidman quite wow. well. We shot for, geez, over a week. And it was the movie Far. It was first called The Irish Story. And this is 89, oh, but it was Far and Away. Far and Away, of course. Yeah, yeah. So oh. Tom Cruise, he spiked on the, you know, he learned how, or he's spiking. And I, I taught him how to swing a spike ball. <laughs> so, yeah. And he he gave me a look. I remember I got a look from him once. And he's a good, when you look at him, he's, 
he looked he was a movie star you could tell yeah he just kind of had that whole thing about him he would smoke cigars sit out by his trailer and he would just go over his lines like he was really really devoted nicole was i think they got married they weren't married at that time but um anyway that was she was really really friendly and asked a lot of questions about that's the railroad that's great yeah you know there is i know there are little bits of history that are still left in the system like um the uh, the roundhouse that's there is it the Palmer Yards there in Magnolia, the the Balmer Balmer that Balmer you're... that's right right yes and we still we service locomotives at that location to this day we've made a number of changes to make it it's, it's extremely quiet in there we have yeah. sound deadening walls and we put in retarders so when we switch that there's not a squeal from the braking and um, it's um, there's uh, again a lot of technology and it's a lot of people don't even know the rail yard is there anymore. And I remember it was maybe 30 years ago that that roundhouse was still, when you drove past, it was an old brick roundhouse. Right. Is, is that brick building still there covered with new material, or has it been they, replaced? Yeah, and like if you go to Great Falls, you can see the Great Northern. A lot of people, rail fans, will go to Great Falls and see the diesel shop that still exists there. And I remember when we, I, I was interviewed by Lester Holt. We had the earthquake, whatever. What year was the earthquake out here? Do you remember? Oh, I, in 2001? None of our old, and a lot of those structures, and our, we always replace our bridges, and, but our railroad checked out. Nothing crumbled. Nice. The, yeah, the building that I was in, I could, I could just feel the wave, and I saw the cabinet. The cabinet fell over, but our brick buildings right alongside this new prefab building that we were in, um, they just, it did, the structures were solid. They checked out fine. That's great. Yeah. And but, and that's not too far from that um, Salmon Bay Bridge, which I remember originally that was going to be replaced, but now that's going to be restored or sort of rebuilt, right? And right? I see, yes, and I just read, so I'm not in the loop every day on all the latest, sure. but I see that Maria Cantwell, I, I think that they made a pledge that was approved to contribute some funding. So as a matter of fact, I'm on a call this week to find out the latest plan for that structure. But well, I know at Stevenson where my – Grandfather came over, and that's where he lived his life. He was the first foreman on the SPNS when it was formed in 1908. They're replacing the bridge at Stevenson now. So we're going across the northwest, and there's a number of bridge replacements that are underway. So see, that's down with, like, Skamania County, right on the that's Columbia? Correct, yeah. Okay, so there's, and how old is the bridge at Stevenson that's being replaced? It's brand new, but it was, it was oh. original. But they've rebuilt them over the years. They're I see. From the original construction, 1908, but they've made upgrades over the years. All right. Yeah, we're, well, yes, go well, ahead. We just got a couple minutes left here, but I wanted to ask you, um, I think you and I spoke about this a few years ago, about there's um, a number of locomotives that have been preserved and set aside. Some have been there for decades and are just, you know, they get, they get a fresh cone of paint every couple of years from the city parks department or whatever. But isn't there a really wonderfully restored engine down at um, down at Wishram or near Wishram or Goldendale? Right. There's one at Wishram, at the okay. park of Wishram. Unfortunately, there's a roof, there's a cover on it that protects it, and it covers the first quarter of the locomotive. It's hard to see that impressive top, but it's a, it's a great-looking locomotive. There's also one that's, and it's inside at the port of Kalama. That oh. was just moved up from the Grand Canyon Railway. That was on display at Esther Short Park for years, ESPNS 539. Okay. And it was moved to from the Esther Short Park, which is across from the Hilton. If your viewer, your audience, um, if they... Um, have ever your listeners have ever been to Vancouver? They've rebuilt the downtown, and it's a brand new downtown along the water. And 
there's a Hilton there, and it was the, at the park right across from there. But that locomotive now at Kelso, Got on it. The, or it's Kalama actually, the port of Kalama, and it's it's worth seeing. And then at Portland, the Northwest Rail um, Museum in Portland, it's next to OMSI, the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. There's locomotives on display in there that are really impressive. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, one last question, I guess. In in the the time you spent here in Montana and you know, other parts of the system. Is there anything that sets apart a sort of Washington, Oregon part of railroading from other parts of the country? Anything that's sort of unique in terms of the the look? You know, each geographic. So we operate 28 states and um, three Canadian provinces, and each area has its challenges. And from and I started out in the engineering department, and out here, so from Portland to Vancouver, BC, you have 250 miles, almost 300 miles of track that operates next to waterways and so you have the waterway the railroad and then you have these high cliffs and you have a lot of communities so you have challenges with trespassers but you have the challenges with mudslides because we get so much rain out here and that's we've taken numerous steps and we've really really eliminated a lot of those by putting in we put in sensors monitors we put in um these slide detection fences, we have catchment walls, retaining walls, and we've really minimized the number of slides that would could have impacted the line and caused yeah. problems. We've taken care of that, but we still have. It's hard to stop Mother Nature, as you know, when it starts raining hard, and yeah. the slopes are going to come down right on our railroad at times. So that, that's a challenge to this area, one of the more unique situations that we face out here in the yeah. Northwest. And, and even with all the technology you've described, all the changes and everything, there's still something when you're, I don't know, on I-90 out there in the far part, eastern part of the state, or I was over at the locks the other day, I looked over and saw the Salmon Bay Bridge, you know, the counterweight going up and the bridge connecting so a train could cross. All that technology stuff, it's sort of, I forget all about all, about all that stuff, and it's still just really cool. <laughs> there's something about a train that's still just really cool for certain people. Not everybody, I think, would agree with you and me, but, you know, there's there's a certain thing about trains. You just, I can't quite put my finger on exactly what it is, but it's just, it's uh, it's always compelling. Well, that's Felix, I think everything that you put your finger on and everybody else, it's, uh, there's a huge chance that it probably moved on that railway. So yeah. it is, uh, it's a pretty important role, and we're going to continue. We're not going away for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, Gus Malonis, thank you for being a guest here on Cascade of History. And uh, we will definitely have you back to talk about other railroad history stuff in the future, if that's okay with you. Thanks. Have a good night, Gus. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with more from the Pacific Northwest on Cascade of History. To learn more about Space 101.1, visit our website at space101fm.org. Once you're there, you can listen to the live stream and share it with your friends far and wide. See a program calendar, check out the real-time playlist, or even donate to our nonprofit all-volunteer radio station, Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park, and streaming live at space101fm.org. Come aboard. It's time for more Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. You are listening to Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park in Seattle. Uh, thanks to Gus Malonis for joining us. Now, this is the only live radio show all about Northwest history. Um, we are also going to be a podcast um, before you know it. 
I'll, uh, I'll post more information about that on our Facebook page. If you have questions for me or questions or suggestions for future guests, please send an email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com, especially if you have ideas for oh, stuff beyond Seattle like Idaho, Oregon, British Columbia. This is a regional history show. Um, coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to talk to Stephanie Johnson Tolliver from the Black Heritage Society of Washington. But first, it's a vintage audio portion of our program, and I went back deep into the archives to uh, to pull this for my collection. Uh, this is Bob Hope. I think this. I don't think this was played live on the radio. I think this was recorded, and they they played it the day of a couple of big shows he did out at Six Stadium with a big cavalcade of Hollywood starlets and guys like Skinny Ennis. And anyway, this 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 is a Bob Hope you don't normally hear. This isn't a bunch of uh, pre-written jokes and things. This is him. Uh, it sounds like he's. Um, I don't know. It sounds like he's just ad-libbing a lot of stuff, making a lot of fun of Bing Crosby. And so we're going to hear about a five- or six-minute segment from the show. It's Ross McConnell on Como Radio. This is uh, June 8th, 1946 on Cascade of History. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Ross Tellett to Bob Hope McConnell, speaking over the KOMO special events microphone. And on the other side of the mic is the well-known purveyor of humor himself, Bob Hope. Bob, it's a real pleasure to have you here in Seattle. Thank you, Ross. I understand you have many pleasant memories connected with Seattle. Yes, I do. We have, uh, we've been here quite a few times. The last time, I think, we were at the University of Washington campus with, uh, for that big Boeing show, you know? Oh, yes. Trying to talk to people into making B-17s and B-29s, I remember. Did you succeed? I, don't, I think we did. I think we, we won. I'm we? sure you did. Well, <laughs> how did your golfing match with Bing Crosby turn out over at Spokane the other day? Uh, Spokane, well, uh, he played with Bud Ward, and I played with... I had a very fine partner called Neil Christian, a fellow that uh, hits the ball quite well. And uh, we won, Neil Christian and myself. Uh, do you beat I should Crosby? Say that, uh, uh, I should say that I carried Neil Christian's bag, really. Oh, I, I, see. I was on his back all day. I had the velvet spurs on. Man wants my picture. Pardon me. Okay, old man. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, what was your score? It's my bad side, but check back. We can retouch all the time. Man's just taking our picture here. Let me know those things, will you, please? This is before breakfast. My face is, isn't shaped yet. Comes to around quarter to two. Yes, Ross. What'd you say, old man? Well, let's see. You, do you beat Crosby consistently on the green, of course? No, I don't. Uh, I don't want to brag too much about beating that old man. I mean, I don't. I think it's sort of a hollow victory, don't you? To stand up, it's like saying that you can smash Doctor Townsend or something, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I handled him the other day. I had seventy-four shots. The first time I ever saw that downriver course, and. Uh, Bing played five cents a hundred. I thought we had a nice game over there. It was what, really very nice. What's your handicap? You know, uh, I don't know whatever happened to his horses, but it's the first time I ever saw a golf bag with a tail. Believe me. <laughs> Let's see now. Where were we? Oh, yes. Uh, what's Where? your handicap? My handicap? My swing. I have a... Uh, no, no. I have my handicap as six. My handicap is six. Yes, sir. I had a nice game over there. We got up on the first tee of that downriver course, and I took a full swing at the ball and missed it. They've lowered the course since I was there last. Then I took another full swing at the ball and missed it again. There were two little ants sitting on the ground. The one ant looked at the other and says, let's get up on this ball before this guy kills us. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sick. I'm stuck with it. Well, incidentally, Bob, but right now you're somewhat of a two-faced or rather two-voiced individual. Read that right, will you, Ross? Please uh, watch yourself. Well, which one do you prefer? <laughs> two-voiced? Okay. Two-voiced. Well, you're being interviewed on... Double uh, you're on uh, job. KOMO, and you're this also... This is a double station anyway, isn't it? That's right. This is KOMO and our... NBC. Uh, oh, no, K- oh. KOMO. You don't want to mention that other... The Fisher's uh... Blend Station, Incorporated. Are we here with the blue, but we're not talking, are we, to the blue? Isn't that true? Uh, Mr. Hope, uh, this, is, uh, this is this is NBC. Don't you mention those things on this station. Yes, sir. Uh, wait, 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 wait
And uh, right now you're talking to the people and the listeners of KOMO and you're This is the regular thing that we're on, oh, isn't it? Oh, well, how do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Pepsi and Station House. Say, um, uh, do, do we come over here every uh, every Tuesday night on this thing? Oh, yes, you do. How do we sound? Do they make it funnier here? Do they tune it up or how do you know what they They give you your due. Do they dub in a few laughs they, here? Oh, absolutely. Who is this up here? Is that the head announcer sticking out of the wall? Oh, no, that's... that's a, that mountain goat? Oh, does he well, have the Alaskan uh, station I, or may something? May I speak for myself? I might say that sometimes <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> That's a very nice thing. Where are we? Oh, yes, you're out at uh, six Seattle Stadium the right wax now. Out of you his ears. Look at those things there. Well, where, uh, where are we at, Ross? We're out at six Seattle Stadium. Six and Seattle also Stadium. On the, yes, uh, let's also not on forget that. Because, uh, you see, this is a transcribed interview recorded Let's stay with that six Seattle Stadium, uh, Ross. We're out there this afternoon. At two fifteen, with forty people, do you think we'll have an aquacade or a regular stage show? What do you think? That's what I want to know. Forty people. Forty people. Well, we have. Who are the uh, other celebrities in the show? Well, that's very sweet of you, Ross. You're welcome. I've never kissed a man, but I feel something coming on. Ross, I want to. Please don't. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take a half a dozen if they turn out. The man's taking our pictures from the back. Do you think I look better back through there? What is that there? We have Skinny Ennis and his band uh, uh, doing a wonderful program. They open the show and then play for the whole show. We have uh, Olga San Juan, the Puerto Rican Pepper Pot. Then we have uh, six beautiful Paramount starlets. The Paramount studio allowed us to bring up here. And we have Eddie Rio, Jack Pepper, a kid that's been all over the world with me on our tours. We have the Nielsen Twins, Jim and Mildred Mulcahy, some fine recording uh, harmonica artists. And uh, all in all, it's quite a big simus. It's, a, it's quite a big large... Sure. It really sounds know. like... Yes, it, it works out fine, and we always get out early away from the FBI and everything. It works out very nice. And, and the show will be repeated tonight at 8.15. You're so lovely, Ross. Oh, yes. Say it louder. Uh, what's the purpose of your present tour, Bob? Uh, purpose? We're just trying to get uh, even. Uh, <laughs> we're just trying to get enough money to pay for our laundry and get out of town. We don't ask much, Ross. All we'd like is a hot cup of soup. And uh, just to get out, would you like to talk to my manager? He explains those things. Did you read the paper this morning? I read the paper this morning. Don't we mention the paper on the radio? Oh, just what is the uh, Bob Hope uh, Enterprise? The Bob Hope Enterprise is a little corporation set up to make pictures uh, and to play golf, and uh, we also make mothballs on the side. We have a lot of rackets, you know, different things. We're just trying to get our money back, that's all. We don't ask Mr. Ross, that's all. Well, Bob, uh, you and Bing have teamed up in a number of films, uh, quite a number, I gather. Quite a Uh, few father and son things, yes. uh, so when did you first meet Bing, and uh, how did you happen to team up? I lifted a rock just outside of, uh, of the uh, Hollywood Bowl one day, and I heard this low guttural sound coming out of an adenoid laying there. And I was just about to step on it and said, Stop, that's Mr. Crosby. I didn't recognize him at the time. He was, had his head under his shoulder. And uh, there he was. So I, I pumped air into it, and uh, I think I pumped a little too much because we've never been able to deflate him. Ah, uh, yes, the great <laughs> the great Bob Hope on Como Radio back in 1946, uh, denigrating Bing Crosby with every opportunity he could. Well, we're still waiting to hear from uh, Stephanie uh, Johnson-Tolliver from the Black Heritage Society. The phone system here is interesting. It's sort of a uh, learn, it, learn it as you go. There's not really a way to practice it. So um, <laughs> we'll uh, hope she'll be calling in here in just a moment. Um, I was thinking about all the stuff Gus was saying um, about railroad history in the Northwest. And there's so many great railroad museums. He mentioned the one down in Portland, and he mentioned the uh, locomotives on display at Wish Ram and the one that's in Kalama. Uh, the Northwest Railway Museum up in Snoqualmie is a wonderful place to visit if you haven't been there before. They have a bunch of rolling stock. You can look at pretty much any time of year. 
and they have the old depot there that's open as a museum. Um, if you have other railroad-related museums that you think are worth visiting, I'd love to hear about that. You can send me an email, cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Uh, there's another terrific one over in eastern Washington at a place called Reardon on Highway 2, uh, west of Spokane, probably you know, about a 45-minute, maybe an hour-long drive. They've got a really fabulous collection and a great restoration facility. And they even have this little uh, like a narrow-gauge railroad that I went and rode that um, with my brother-in-law. Actually, hang on. I think I think that's Stephanie on the phone right now. Stand by. Stephanie, can you hear me? Hi, Felix. Uh, ah, yes, I can hear you. There you are. Well, you're on the air. You're on Cascade <laughs> of History. You're our second live <laughs> guest of the night. We are really glad you can join us. Awesome. Um, so this show, I mean, it's our second episode ever, and we're focused on all kinds of history all around the Northwest, uh, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, sort of the old Oregon country, and every, history in the most broad definition possible. So I thought you'd be a perfect mm -hmm. guest because I think I've known you for about, oh boy, I think maybe 25 years, 30, actually probably 30 at years, I think. I think I'm, At least, yeah. eons. Yeah, I remember working on volunteering at the old... Um, the conservatory at Volunteer Park. When you were you and you were working for the Seattle Parks Department, when our our dear friend right. Sharon was running that organization or on the board or something, and they had those plant sales and everything. So anyway, yeah. lot, yeah. lots of yeah. years gone those by. Yeah, those were great days. I know those but, were great days. And um, when you reached out about this evening, I was like, yes, another conversation with Felix. So, <laughs> you know, and then I, I can share about my. My favorite nonprofit historical society, right? Yes, because you um, are the president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington State Incorporated. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes, a, I am. What a great organization. I remember the first time I ran across the the BHS was back at Mohai, God, more than 20 years ago when mm -hmm. you guys would have your, you had your collection there. And this is the old Mohai down at Montlake. And I can't yeah. remember what day of the week it was, but there would always be groups of volunteers. Um, I think Jackie Lawson was in – that's – she was the first person I met and had long conversations oh, yeah. with about, about local history and black history and African-American history. And I just thought it would be fun to talk about, like, because you grew up in Seattle, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. I am a fourth-generation Seattleite. Um, so, yeah, um, really deep roots here and absolutely love living here, love to travel, but would never want to live anywhere else but the Northwest. And what I think is pretty cool about Black Heritage Society is that your organization has been collecting and preserving material for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so much has changed just in the last couple of years with, um, you know, in the wake of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and everything. And it seems like there's a much bigger dialogue and a much broader acceptance of what is local history. And people seem hungry for, for really great stories where before – you go back to the earliest days of Mohai, probably even in the 1950s, it wasn't, you know, it was a pretty white story they told there. It was pretty, and, mm -hmm. and they weren't the only ones doing that. It was it was a different mm -hmm. era. But mm -hmm. there's so many so many great stories and so many great artifacts that you guys have preserved. Um, what, and I, I saw that the um, the William Gross Center opened up in the old fire yeah. station number six there in, in yeah. Seattle a couple of days ago, which is another great, not exactly, I mean, the building's historic, and the neighborhood's historic, mm -hmm. um, but it's just, it, it seems like it's a whole new era in terms of programming and ability for, you know, like driving past there and you look over and there's a, that one of the boxes for the electrical system is painted with mm -hmm. a little mural of, mm -hmm. of, of William Gross, who's there's a, the earliest black entrepreneur in Seattle. 
Um, right. And weren't there have there been a number of intersections yeah. that have been painted like with with black historic figures in Seattle? That you were sending me information about that. I remember even last summer. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I was. I um, there were a number of um, of the signal boxes that that's right. That's right. Um, now at various intersections throughout the central district that have images of um, historic. Um, figures, icons in the community, and um, QR codes attached. Uh, people are still using QR codes. QR codes attached that will lead people to bigger history with their curiosity about those people. And that project came about um, in a partnership where BHF um, supports at the Historic Central Area Arts and Culture District. And uh you know that you know that BHS has been around since 1977. Yeah, and um, and that we've been collecting all that time, and um, with you know uh, two amazing local African American historians and published authors, um, Esther Hall Mumford and Jacqueline Lawson, um, who were leading early on with um, even Ben McAdoo, um, whose name we hear often now as a you know, extraordinary black architect. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just grown to be such a fabulous um, collection, very rich collection. Yeah, and Esther Mumford's book, um, Seattle's Black Victorians, every time I talk to her, and it's yeah. and it's not all the time, but I, I did a story about her, about that book. And in fact, it's been mm-hmm. out of print for 30 years. And yeah. I've been urging her to get that back in print or find some way. Wow. The, the story's in there about the kind of... Um, this time in Seattle in the late 19th century where yeah. it's almost it's almost as if the segregation and the racism that was deeply rooted in the South, mm-hmm. there was like a decade here where there was a fairly significant black population and there wasn't the kind of segregation that would come just 5, 10, 15 years later. There's almost like this little magical time when everybody sort of – it was pretty equal. I'm, I'm, right. I'm overstating it a little bit, I think. Yeah, but, her- you know, and that and that book, I agree with you. Is um, I too, I'm like Esther. What can we do? You know, um, to get that book and reprint. And um, I know that she's seriously thinking about it and working on it. Um, of course, it's available at the library, but then you get on the waiting list, right, for the book. And uh, we were fortunate enough um, last year with Seattle Public Library that they um, reached out and wanted to digitize Jackie Lawson's booklet on Let's Take a Walk Through the Central District. Oh, that's so, great. So I know. Um, so that highlights, you know, all the businesses and locations and people um, of the Central District over four decades. And so, you know, there's opportunities like that and the rich stories that Esther tells, you know, um, in her books are are amazing. It's amazing storytelling as much as it is educating us on um, the history of Washington State black, black when, people. When did your family first come to Washington or first come to Seattle? 1913. Now, which relative was so, that? It was my great-grandparent on my mother's side. So her, her grandmother, my mother's grandmother, um, coming here with her husband, Henry Gordon, and um, setting down their roots on the south end of Beacon Hill. Um, at the time, it was remote, right? It was like <laughs> another land. You needed a, you know, a rest stop between, you know, Seattle and uh, South Beacon Hill. 
Um, so uh, they had a piece of property there that they gardened on, grew their own food, and um, and then my grandmother um, and her siblings came along, and um, then my mother, and then me as the fourth generation um, Seattleite. And so with your great-grandparents, where had they come from, and what either drove them to or mm-hmm. pulled them towards Seattle? Um, Arkansas. Okay. Arkansas on my... Um, on my mother's side, on, on my um, grandmother's side, on my grandfather's side, um, they were coming from New Orleans. Wow. And what drew them was work, employment. Um, they heard about, you know, the Northwest and um, this being the promised land, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 You know, but then getting here and going, hmm, I don't know, you know, there's some reality checks here. Yeah, yeah. So, uh so yes, um, they were definitely powered by um, this vision that they had for um, bettering their, um, you know, the, their existence and that of their families. And did those did those previous generations in your family that you're that you're old enough to remember and that that, that lived long enough to to tell you stories or kind of tell you about what Seattle was like? A hundred years ago, or or maybe not quite yeah. that long ago, did they tell you stories about about stuff like the challenges they faced, or people who were nice? Or I mean, did they did they kind of give you a sense of, of of those early early years for your family in Seattle? Yeah, but you know, at the time that it was happening, and I was a kid, there wasn't a lot of conversation with me around it. I think um, the adults um, were the adults, and they you know, would politely excuse me from the room, (laughs) you know, when they were talking about um, some of the politics that were going on in the city or um, something that they heard that was, um, you know, nationwide, something that was happening nationally. But um, I think more than anyone, my grandmother shared more than any of, uh, you know, my grandparents. and, And she you know, worked in downtown Seattle, so she had a lot of experiences to share about her work in downtown Seattle and some of the segregation that she faced herself in some of the larger department stores that you would just shake your head at and go, no, not Seattle. Yeah, because there was that myth the long time that was popularized. I mean, I don't I don't know that I helped promote it, but I, I definitely thought about this, or I, I used to like to think that Seattle was immune to the racism and segregation that was far more mm-hmm. widespread and far more visible in other parts of the country. It's I think I think you and I have talked about this before, but I think I've, I've talked to others who have said that it was just it was almost worse because it was so subtle. Like it was not yeah. it wasn't spoken. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered, mm-hmm. you know, because um, I think Frederick and Nelson had pretty. I mean, they they had pretty blatant. I think they're probably the most racist of the department stores. So they actually had stuff in their newspaper ads or where they mm-hmm. were ser- searching mm-hmm. for specific kinds of employees and you know mm-hmm. race race specific. Mm-hmm. And I've been told before that black people just knew not to go there. Yeah, well, you weren't welcome there. I mean, um, it it wasn't comfortable. I mean, they they didn't have a guard at the door, you know, or the yeah. signs that were so blatant. You know, in the south, you you knew what to expect. You know, you knew. Um, where to watch and where to look. But um, here in the Northwest, it was a little different. And um, I've heard these stories um, over the last couple of years as BHS has been involved with 
the Green Book Project and the Green Book Exhibition that came to Washington State Historical Museum and uh, our History Museum and um, Candace Taylor talking about um, the Northwest. We, you know, we had places here that were sundown towns too. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, and for someone who doesn't know what that is, explain what a sundown town is. Well, they were towns where um, no black people lived or very few maybe on the outskirts of town, right? And um, typically after dark, and so the name's Sundown, so typically after dark, if you worked in that city or you had business in that city, um, you were not welcome there after dark. Hmm. Um, or you, you didn't want to be there after dark, let me put it that way. And there were some signs that were posted, you know, um, on the boundaries of, of those communities or, or cities um, and, that just said, you know, you, you're not welcome here. Keep on moving. Yeah. And the, the numbers, I mean, the numbers of, of black people in terms of, uh, you know, a percent of the population were relatively small until you get to the World War II period and you have mm-hmm. mass migrations of people from all over the rural parts right. of the country coming to work in defense plants in Seattle and around Seattle. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it's just that sort of that's when things seem to sort of radically shift and it becomes like an actual these issues become sort of more forefronted than they had been in the past where the population, the it was, it was a relatively mm-hmm. small part of the population, so it wasn't as it wasn't as intense as it got to be in the in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, right, because we had military, right? Yeah, military yeah. folks were coming and yeah. aerospace and um, steel. So, mm-hmm. and then I've also I've, I've read there's a book a couple of years ago, or maybe maybe longer ago than that now, about um, when the Hanford Project was built and how there was you know very heavily segregated mm-hmm. neighborhoods and you know Pasco was where you had to live if you were black mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You, know, you couldn't couldn't live in Richland or Hanford at that point. Um, now, I think the last time I talked to you, um, you were working on that Green Book Project, and that Green Book traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian Institution was down at the History Museum in Tacoma for a while. Mm-hmm. What is, what's BHS working on now? What's next on the horizon for you guys in terms of projects the public can participate in? Oh, my God. It's been, it's been so exciting, um, despite um, the fact that these last two and a half years, um, the community and organizations and our, our members have been showing us lots of love. Um, we... Uh, are working on a project with Historic Seattle. Um, our partnership has grown significantly with Historic Seattle. Um, as I sit on the advisory there now, and we just had a spring campaign to support strategies and, and skills building with community to identify and recognize black heritage sites. Oh, wow. Um, King County Fort Culture has also supported this effort you know, to look at how heritage sites are underrepresented on landmark registers and encouraging us to look through this, um, what we're calling an equity lens, to magnify and recognize um, the sites that are significant. Um, Even though they may not be aesthetically important, um, they are important to the vitality uh, of the community in a less tangible way. Um, So they are significant. The Washington Trust is a fabulous partner um, with us and the Seattle Architecture Foundation to talk about character hmm. of historic neighborhoods. And, um, we're, you know, we've just been really excited about digitizing pieces of our collection, too. That's great. So we have some money to, 
to move that forward so we can share more broadly online. Yeah, that survey work identifying you know sites that are associated with Black Heritage. I know there was a similar project mm-hmm. around Latinx heritage in King County in yes. Western Washington a couple of years ago. And boy, yes. I, I definitely want. I mean, you already know this, but I hope that Annie Smith's restaurant makes it onto that list. I know. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll we'll make sure that Annie's make, Annie makes it, and that's, that's too, uh, you know some other really uh, yeah. unique sites and. So, yeah, it's just exciting times uh, for us and um, receiving the We See You Award from the Black Future Fund nice. um, and cultural spaces like Art Noir opening and Wanawari Cultural Center. Right on. Um, yeah, are just places that we um, support. And you mentioned the William Gross um, Cultural Innovation Center. So exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so much going on. We're gonna we'll have you back to talk about more stuff in the future. Okay. And Annie Smith, that's a whole other story. We could we could do a that, whole show on Annie Smith's restaurant there. It's basically do. it's in the Green Book. It's a, a restaurant, a Southern fried chicken restaurant in a house that was up on Capitol Hill, and the house is still there. So yeah, right there on Madison, right yeah. off Twenty of Third Madison. And I should say just before I, I you let me go is that BHS annual members and friends meeting is our first in person in two years. Right on, on September 24th at 11 o'clock, Douglas Truth Library. Perfect. We're going to talk to our special guest, Taylor Brooks, who is now managing the largest African-American literature collection on the West Coast Right on. here at Douglas Truth. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on Sunday evening here on Cascade yeah. of History. And, thank um, you. Well, good luck with the meeting next week, and let's be in touch. We'll thank have you, you back on the show sometime soon, okay? Have a good night. Okay, Felix. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, well, that wraps up another voyage of Cascade History here on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell. Join me next Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Got some wonderful guests coming in who will be live in studio with me. Have a good night and have a good week and focus on Northwest history. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.